I want to start off with a fun question for you today. What futuristic city from a movie would you most want to live in? The Washington, D.C., of course, of Minority <laughs> Report, Steven Spielberg, Tom Cruise. Love that movie, almost 20 years old. Uh, Tom Cruise fighting crime, walking down the street, and he's, like, going by these stores, and suddenly, like, he gets these personalized ads that are like, hello, sir, like, come in here, and Jim, this is just for you. You and- really want to live there? That's, like, so bleak. It's basically a surveillance state, and didn't they have vertical freeways? Come on, all futuristic cities and movies are pretty bleak, Mal. Yeah, but I thought you were going to say Hill Valley from Back to the Future 2. I love those movies. Everybody loves that place, right? It's this idyllic 1960s suburb, but it has flying cars and hoverboards. I mean, that's kind of a transportation planner's nightmare, but people oh, love that place. come on. I really wanted one of those hoverboards when I was a I kid. I bet Don't you did. Don't let transportation nerdness get in the way when you're trying to tell a story <laughs> as important as Back to the Future and Barney McFly. Well, look, I'm surprised you didn't say a movie that we're talking about today, Black Panther, right? Right? It doesn't let transportation get in the way because it has this amazing transportation system while telling a great story. I love that movie, but that's just not fair, Molly, because that movie came out last year and it's about the present day. The city is in the present well, day. Well, I think it's as futuristic as anything we've seen in movies. I mean, the golden city of Wakanda is amazing. It has these futuristic tall buildings surrounded by beautifully preserved landscape. And then the roads are like at a human scale, bustling with all of these people walking everywhere. And then you have vibranium-powered trains and buses zooming around. I mean, that's pretty futuristic, if you ask me. You know, it was so great that it won the Academy Award for Hannah Beachler, the production designer. You know, I kind of want to give her my own little personal award for designing a vision of what a city could be. I mean, that's why I asked her on the show today, because I thought it would be so refreshing to hear from someone who is not the policy wonk or the tech nerd, someone who has a different (laughs) perspective on cities. Yes, exactly. Someone who's going to help us think differently. Well, it's going to be a really fun conversation. Stay tuned. We'll be back after the break. Welcome to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. And I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban innovation at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. Today we're going to be talking with Hannah Beachler, the production designer for films like Moonlight, Fruitvale Station, Creed, Beyonce's Lemonade, and of course Black Panther. You know, production designers have, like, the coolest job in the movies, and I don't think most people even know what what they do, but they basically are responsible for almost everything you see on on the screen. In the case of Black Panther, I mean, she was kind of like the the cinematic architect of the Golden City. (laughs) I mean, that was like, you know, that's really what she was focused on, was like, what is Wakanda going to look like? I have to say, folks have definitely taken notice of her vision. Our friend Brenton Mock at City Lab published, no joke, The Wakanda Reader, which is a (laughs) compilation of all of the many articles that were written about Wakandan urbanism. Articles like The Attainable Wonders of Wakandan Transit. That train again. That train. A Black Planning Scholar's Reflections on Black Panther and Saving Historic Places. Why Wakanda is Where Every Urbanist Wants to Live. And a ton more. Can I get a copy of that for my bedside? Sounds like good (laughs) nighttime reading. But listen, I don't think it's that surprising that it's inspired articles like that. I mean, talking to to Hannah, she was telling us she actually wrote a 500-page book about every detail 
of that city. Every building, right? Every stone it felt like. Well, whatever she wrote in that book clearly worked because she created a city that included so many ideas that urbanists have been dreaming about for so long. Which is exactly why we wanted to have her on the show. So we started by asking her, what was it like to build not a city of the future, but a city of today the way that it ought to be? We wanted people to feel familiar or relatable. Like, they're not looking at Tron, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) They're not looking at Star Wars. Black Panther is set in 2018. Mm -hmm. So while it is futuristic looking, we also had to remember that we're still in present day world. That comes down to sort of form and repetition. So you come up with a design language. In Golden City, almost everything is a circle. Uh, hmm. <laughs> and that sort of design language came from Mpulanga ruins, which are 150,000 years old. And it's all specifically designed like a fortress to keep people out. So there is even tradition in the design language. There's been so many movies that have imagined cities in, in sort of new ways and have influenced, I think, a lot of uh, a lot of us and a lot of people's thinking. And, and I think about my, my father forcing me. He's a film professor and sociologist, so movies are close to my heart. Uh, but forced me to watch Blade Runner at age 10. And, <laughs> um, and it's interesting that you know 2019, this year, is actually the year that Blade Runner, the original, uh, was depicting in, of Los mm-hmm. Angeles. I've always loved Blade Runner, and I did look at, you know, the sort of density. Um, the, it was really dense with people, with buildings, with, you know, vehicles. And It's a dark vision of the future of Blade Runner, and I feel like I mean, Wakanda, to me, seems in the Golden City to be maybe in contrast. It's really in contrast to that, you know. When you see, like, Steptown, you know, I wanted it to feel packed with people and dense and open air. But the polar opposite of what Blade Runner was sort of offering, because it all had to connect back to the preservation of the people in nature. How did you make all of those things come to life in a place like in this neighborhood, Steptown, in the Golden City, where it looks like a narrow alley in an old town and there are a lot of people on the streets? The thought behind Step Town was, okay, this is the area of town where it's young uh, families, up and coming, you know, artists and scholars and writers and hip art neighborhoods and exactly. U.S. cities were in your mind. That sort of vibe. But we're taking the traditional architecture from certain countries, from Nigeria, from Sudan, from Uganda, Mali, and imagining what would this generation of Wakandans do with their traditional architecture? How would they have made it different? So the rule for us was always that tradition should always prevail. Why was tradition so important to you? Because I think it's something that's been lost in the Black community. It's in the back of your mind all the time, like, where do I come from? What is, you know, Mm -hmm. what part of this continent am I from? Am I even from this continent? Mm -hmm. You know, Black people are everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Everywhere. So, you know, a lot of the traditions that we have lost and don't know is something that I wanted to make sure that we included within the design. You know, it's basically what would an African nation look like had they had complete autonomy over their own resources and their own agency to do with their land what they wanted to. Your vision for what like the ideal city could be is in such stark contrast to me from like 
all of the technologists' visions of future cities where they're totally created from scratch. It's like there's some godlike planner who designs it from the top down. Everything is gleaming steel and metal and glass, and you never see any historic elements of cities. For some reason, they always want to build it in some (laughs) new place where there's no history to contend with. And, I mean, one way that this manifests for me was like, You have buses (laughs) in the Golden City. Like, can you talk about, like, how you chose, like, what elements of history to include and what kind of new technological fantasies you wanted to bring into the Golden City? I really wanted to keep everything within an evolution of what was. Any country you go to in Africa, you will see these buses, most notably in Lagos, where there was mm-hmm. like 800 people hanging. <laughs> when we were in Cape Town, I'm like, I mean, it was real. There were buses everywhere, and there was always like a million people in them, and they people were going to work, and people were going to wherever they needed to go. It's a very familiar, traditional thing. Why then destroy it? It's sort of like what you were saying. Why mm-hmm. didn't they destroy this thing that's so familiar to people, thing that's part of sort of the culture that's within different uh, communities. Instead of destroying it, you just evolve it. So how did you evolve the the buses? Well, now that bus is working on vibranium. So it's green. It's still open air. It's still got 100 people in it. It still has a driver. It yeah, runs the bus on... still has a driver in, in the Golden Why? City? It's interesting. Yeah, why did you decide <laughs> to do that? And, I mean, Silicon Valley is all about autonomy, autonomous oh, we vehicles. We talked about that, too. Ryan was like, he's like, do we need a driver? And I'm like, I, I'm like, well, you don't, but I think we do. Because I think that there's something about that that's also a part of um, African-American history is mm. the bus driver. Mm. The bus also, you think of the Rosa Parks story. Sure. It's a big part of who we are. We rode a bus into Selma. It's, in a sense, how our familiarity with that type of a vehicle has evolved as well as the African. You know what I mean? I have to. African-American culture is different than African culture, but there is a, a string that connects. There's so a cultural it's significance sort of to that. It. And, there's, and there's that bus driver relationship, too, where you, you get to know your bus driver. Exactly. The human connection is still valuable in our ideal city. It is. Innovation and technology it has to be about people. People have to come first. In my humble opinion, you know, and starting to work in, on Wakanda, it was like Wakandans have to be evolved within themselves. Mm-hmm. They cannot have this type of technology and be who we are currently mm. <laughs> as a race of Well, people. wait, say more. What do you mean by that? They understand that they don't need it. They don't need technology to survive. They don't need to do something faster or quicker or this idea of convenience or consumerism. They don't need that. Oh, you're speaking Molly's language. (laughs) (laughs) What technologies did you decide not to use in Wakanda? Like, does Uber and Lyft exist in Wakanda? (laughs) Yeah, we were wondering that. Will they exist now that, you know, it's gone public? Will they now be in Wakanda too? (laughs) (laughs) No. (laughs) You don't see Lyft, but another way that energy is run, it's like you, you look at a city like New York and there's, just millions of people walking all day long, and it's so much u- unused energy, mm-hmm. all of this foot traffic. So the sidewalks in Golden City are, they absorb that energy and they, all, and they run buildings. Amazing. Vibranium absorbs exactly. energy and then spits it exactly. back, right? But yeah, I, don't, and I don't think that that's something that's unrealistic for a real city. Like, why, why can't we utilize 
all the people that walk around Midtown all day long. I mean, New York is a walking city, and I think, Mm -hmm. you know, urban cities are going to go that way, walking, biking. I don't know about flying cars. There were no flying cars in Wakanda that I could see. They seem to be in every other futuristic movie. <laughs> we that was purposeful. Why? We talked and talked and talked about the flying cars cuz there's even flying cars in uh the comics. Oh, so you took them out. That's interesting. A little bit of it was because it felt too far into the future for where we wanted to be. I mean, I personally hate the idea of flying cars because people always propose them as a solution to traffic. But I'm like, you're just going to get traffic in the sky. That's not going to be a fun place to live. So I loved that there weren't any flying cars. Yes. Honestly, I'm I'm hesitant with people on the road. I've been in some taxis where it's like, no, you should never be in a flying car. Um <laughs> Right. So. You shouldn't be in this. You shouldn't be in this taxi right now, driving me. Let alone <laughs> exactly. Flying, flying let alone plane. flying through Manhattan. Talk to us about the train. The train seemed to be really central uh, in Wakanda. It, it's sort of the showcase for the vibranium, um, and trains seem to sort of pervade some of the other films you've worked on with mm-hmm. Ryan Coogler. What's the importance of the train in the, in Wakanda for you? Transportation is a big thing for Ryan, and I learned that on Fruitvale Station. Because, you know, that whole thing was around the BART system. And he grew up with public transportation in a way that I didn't, coming from sort of country girl. That I grew was up a big... on BART, too, by the way. <laughs> I get his infatuation. Yeah. So for him, it was a really important piece. in Creed, you know, you see the Ellen Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then yep. when we got to Wakanda, Ryan was like, okay, so what's the transportation system here? And I was like, oh, excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of started thinking at like, how are people getting around? That's when we were talking about cars. Do they fly? Do they hover? Do they, what do they do? And buses. And, you know, we designed a whole train system that was a little bit on a hyperloop, but, you know. Hyperloop? Like Elon Musk's hyperloop? Certainly the hyperloop was inspiration. Huh. But um, not not at all what we ended up with. Speaking of Elon Musk, I mean, his vision of the future is so different from yours. I don't know if you've seen his Boring Company, which is, you know, the company that will dig the tunnels Mm -hmm. for Hyperloop and other things. He has this promotional video for it that I always play in my um, class I teach at Berkeley. The video is, you know, has this exciting music and the car goes down into the tunnel and kind of like magnetically levitates through the tunnel. <laughs> but there's not a single human being in the entire video. Yeah. And I'm like, I always tell my students, I'm like, what are we designing this for? To move cars or to move people? And that's like the absolute inverse of what you're saying you were thinking about in Wakanda. Absolutely. It was always the focus was the people, right? When Ryan and I talked about anything that was... In the city, and it was about the, what's the story? What's the history of it? How did it affect the people? How do the people use it? How, what, you know, and I wrote a history for all the little pieces and parts, the stories about the parks and what they're called and what their nicknames are and how they got their nicknames by the kids that would go there and, you know, party in the tunnels. There is a story about that, <laughs> about the kids partying we in the tunnels. You don't necessarily see when necessarily you watch the movie, but you, you, you all know that this is, this is what the city yes. built. and you have to do that in order to understand and the thing that you're building and why you're building it. We'll be back with more from Hannah Beachler right after this quick break. So stay with us. Any of the technology that we were making or conceiving, it was in service to 
the environment and in service to the people. Like the roads are grass and dirt, but we have the hover van that comes through. Yeah, that was such an interesting juxtaposition. Why did you make that choice to have sort of the dirt road and then with the hovercraft? I mean, it, it's sort of a clash of the old and the new. Right. And, and I think it's also something that when people start thinking about like cities, they start thinking about what, how do we service the longevity of our cities without constant repair, right? Mm -hmm. So you have a lot of cities that have flooded in this past two, three years in this country, and worse than they had previously. One of the reasons why they flood so badly is because we are covered in concrete. There is nowhere for water to go except for collect. Mm -hmm. So flooding gets worse and worse and worse. You're in direct opposition of your environment at that point. So when we're thinking about the streets in the, the city of Wakanda, if it's all about the environment, then they wouldn't have, you know, gas cars. They would have something mm-hmm. that nobody else in the world has, which is, right. you know, hovercrafts that run on vibranium, which is basically their entire energy source. And you talk a lot about the vibranium, which I know is sort of part of the comic book lore, uh, you know, of, the, of, of Wakanda and obviously drives a lot of the technology. How do you guys think about its role, though? Because it does seem to have a bit of a magical quality where, like, everything, well, it's because of the vibranium. We went round and round because the only thing we really know of vibranium is Captain Mar- uh, Captain America's um, shield. Shield, so, right. you know, it's one of those things where you're kind of going along and thinking like, oh, that'll get solved. And then one day you realize like, we, I got to solve, <laughs> we got to figure this out. It can't be just a magical substance. And that, that's what I struggled with, I think, the most. And so then you start becoming an expert in metallurgy. <laughs> <laughs> You know, you do get to a place where you're kind of like, oh, vibranium, that'll make it work. You know, (laughs) just say it's vibranium. Right, right. (laughs) And you really have to work hard not to do that. So we did talk to a lot of experts. A lot of theories came through about red stars having to explode at certain moments. (laughs) So there was a lot of Wow, you went deep with those experts. We went deep. We went deep. Not only did you become like a metallurgy expert, it sounds like, but you, (laughs) you also really feel like you've thought a lot about cities and become kind of an urban expert through all this. Like, how did you become such an urbanist? Is this something you were raised to always think about? I did. I mean, I grew up, I have to say, I grew up, my father was an architect. So I've been Ah. around it my entire life since the day I was born. Mm -hmm. He started his, his own firm the year I was born. So I grew up in a sense really kind of understanding, like driving around with my dad was always him explaining like why things were the way they were, why roads were the way they were, why buildings were there, what the history of those buildings were in my hometown and, you know, what the flood did, how things can be improved because he was also very much into using renewable materials to build low-income housing. Mm. So I, it was always there. <laughs> it was mm-hmm. always there. As much as I thought I was going to ignore it and not have anything to do with it, you know, for me, this is—it feels more normal than anything to do something like this. You've referred a few times to, to floods. You just talked about your dad, I guess, helping you think through a, a flood and how it influenced maybe him. And you are in New Orleans, uh, which obviously has experienced, you know, the epic of all floods. Uh, and we talked about Wakanda and the dirt roads. When you think about cities, are we thinking appropriately about how to protect ourselves and how does it inform your own thinking about cities? I don't think we are thinking enough about how to protect ourselves in in ways that are not just protecting our property, but, you know, protecting 
protecting the integrity of the history of, of what what is there. You know, mm-hmm. I think in New Orleans, I never understood it. I, I always looked at that city like, why would you build a bowl? <laughs> you know, like that never made sense to me because we know from the time we're born what happens in a bowl. And that's what happened. How long have you lived in New Orleans? About 15 years. Did it influence at all how you've portrayed different cities in your films, whether the Golden City or Miami and Moonlight? You know, I think the thing about living in New Orleans is that I it gave me a really great reverence for keeping your history intact. Mm. You know, you don't, you're not going to find a bunch of big box stores in New Orleans proper. You're not going to find a bunch of Starbucks. You're not mm-hmm. going to find a bunch of any of that. People want to keep it the way it was, and I have a lot of respect for for that. Like, you can walk around New Orleans and look up at the houses, and you see history. And I think that's something I did bring to Wakanda is— mm-hmm the reverence for that history and the fact that the city has gone through so much and and it's still here. The people are still here. Speaking of some of the challenges of U.S. cities, in your other films in Moonlight and Fruitvale Station, you were capturing the lived experiences of Black Americans in Miami and Oakland. Mm-hmm. If you were to envision some utopian U.S. city for a film, how might your approach differ from what you built in Wakanda? Like, what, how would that look in the United States if it could exist at all? If it could exist at all. I mean, I think that one thing about in the United States, it's like, is it a city that exists because you got to work around what you got? When I was in New York just recently, I mean, I would stand outside and stare at that city for hours trying to figure out how to upgrade it. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for hours, it was like, how can I use these buildings? How can I use the verticality of the city Mm -hmm. to make it something that services everybody? Is it that we start building, you know, what I like to call skyways Mm -hmm. um, that can link both ends of the city together, um, getting traffic off the ground so you can start taking up the concrete and creating communal areas of business instead Mm -hmm. of business inside buildings. Mm -hmm. You have communal areas of business outside. Um, There's some more Presumably more accessible to more people. More spaces where people are sort of forced to be in each other's space and converse. I don't think there's enough of that. I think we're going in the direction where we're sort of dividing each other up into these like rows and lines and aisles and people are sort of moving along. I think that if you create more uh, geometric large spaces um, it with with that, you are forcing people to be together. And I think mm-hmm. that we have to relearn how to do that now because the technology has pulled us out. We're so busy inside of our phones that we forget to look up and see the faces in front of us. Yeah, I couldn't agree with that more. I feel like that way whenever I'm in a lift or, or on the train or on my, on my phone or even, well, on the train, everyone's on their phone not paying attention to each other, you know, because you can kind of go into your own little your own little world. But I like that idea of people bumping into each other more. Creating those exactly. communal, communal spaces. Creating spaces where you have to, like, interact. And, you know, I understand automation, but there's a there's something to be said about jobs. Like, when I was in South Africa, when I pulled into the gas station at one point, I mean, there was, like, 30 people everywhere. They were, like, checking <laughs> the everything. tires and cleaning the thing. And I was like, this is crazy. What is going on? And Ryan looked at me. He said, because we don't do that anymore. 
everything that these people are doing is a job. And also we're now talking to them and we're we're interacting with them. Mm-hmm. So it, it was a much different feeling. It was kind of cool. And it was like, oh, I'm, I just learned something about some person that I would have never met or talked to had that not been there. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot about creating that type of a thing as well within the structures and the architecture, you know, that we have because people don't realize how much control a city has over your life. It decides what time you come into the city. It decides what time you leave the city. It decides where you sit, how you sit, where you go, when you go there, how long it takes you to get there, how many lights turn green. I mean, it's it's such a controlled movement around that if you kind of take that back and let people freely move, they're going to be more apt to reach out to each other, I think, than being like, I got to get to the train at 8 o'clock or else I'm not going to get home on time to get the babysitter to do the thing. You're under stress 24-7. How do we design that out of a city? What kind of lessons, based on what you just said, do you think city planners uh, you know, should take from, I guess, what you created on the screen? What, what would you like to see happen more in, let's say, U.S. cities that is, is not happening today? I think that a lot of cities need to look into where their public transportation goes. I'd love to see that change, Chicago. You know, there's a lot of low-income areas that public transportation does not get to. Mm -hmm. Therein lies the dominoes, right? Because then mom can't get to work on time, and now her kid can't get to school on time. and It's just dominoes. We need to start connecting neighborhoods. Like, when I go to a city, I always feel like I am really alone, Sometimes, mm. like, I, it's really hard to talk to people or find people to talk to, you know, and I try to make an effort to talk to people all the time. What we decided to do was just make a world that honored ritual and spirituality and people and family and community and food. And 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 it was about connecting and unity. We want all this technology and we want all this advancement, but we are really unwilling to advance ourselves. Mm. Mm. And you cannot handle technology that we have if we do not work on evolving who we are. We have slowed at evolution because we don't need it that much anymore. We are not adapting to anything. We're adapting to screens. And that is not the direction I think that we want our our children to take. What a wonderful note to end on, Hannah. We need to innovate on ourselves before we innovate on technology or even on cities. Like, I'm going to use that in my class if I have your permission (laughs) to say that. Absolutely. Before we go, though, Hannah, we've got to ask, there's got to be some teaser for Black Panther 2. And I, we're gonna be on scooters, I, I, I really can't give scooters. any spoilers, but because you know what I mean. Marvel's a big, bad company. I can't do that. But I can say that I have been working on some really fantastic, amazing stuff. Again, people first, but the technology this time around is really going to be mind-blowing. Molly and I will be right back to debrief on our conversation with Hannah Beachler right after the break. So stay with us. So I think it's fair to say that if Hannah were designing a real city and not just one on the silver screen, that you and I might want to live there. Hell yeah, I would. I mean, what's so powerful about her vision is that she's taken all of these really sophisticated ideas about urbanism Mm -hmm. and technology 
and built this city that resonates with everyone. I know. I mean, that's one of the things I just love about movies, right? It's that they allow us to challenge our imaginations and to see things in new ways. Yeah. I mean, I have conversations all the time about you know, chipping away at the concrete to make us more flood resistant. Uh-huh. But, you know, Hannah starts from this radical premise. Remove the concrete, like, altogether, <laughs> just remove it. And yeah. you see something like that on the screen in Black Panther, right? And you begin to think, wow, maybe we should think bigger. So many of our best ideas are limited by political or economic constraints, and that's exactly the kind of world that technologists are really good at envisioning, right? They love this tabula rasa where, you know, like, they don't have to worry about community meetings or... Oh, not the pesky, incentive, yeah, not pesky right? democratic processes, and, like, right? bulldoze through the city and through all of the history of that city, whereas Hannah's like, yes, I'm thinking big, but history is a creative constraint for me. Like, I'm building a city that is layered upon this long historical foundation. Totally. But on the other hand, I think sometimes city leaders and urban planners, they take all these constraints too seriously. Like, so true. Every time I bring up at a city meeting, I hear, oh, the reasons why it won't work. Yeah, totally. I'm like, guys, like, and I start like, pleading with them, like, like, let's not start with what's not possible. Let's imagine what is possible. Can we try to do that? Yeah. And I think movies, you know, they help us with that because they force us to imagine what's possible beyond those sort of normal everyday constraints. You know, movies have actually influenced a lot of technologists. Did you know, for example, Uber was inspired by the James Bond Casino Royale movie, you know, where he oh, like one of my favorites. tracks the uh, with, car on the yeah, GPS? Yeah, with the GPS thing. Yeah, yeah that yeah, inspired yeah. Uber. Okay, well then going in that line of thinking, what new urban tech ideas do you hope Black Panther inspires in Silicon Valley. I hope that they'd notice that Hannah is actually doing something really different from what a lot of technologists do, and that she doesn't reflexively believe that technology is always an improvement, right? She's taking things that work pretty well for us today and just evolving them well, a little right. bit. Right. She said, don't use tech to destroy something that's there, but use it to evolve. Exactly. To evolve us. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, the example with the bus driver, right? She's like, I know we can have autonomous vehicles, but I want to keep the bus driver. Or the thing that I hope this movie inspires is the energy-producing sidewalks. It takes something that we've been doing since the beginning of time, walking, (laughs) that seems to work pretty well for most of us, and just makes it even better. That's actually something that some companies are testing out. It's not really working very well yet, but a kind of a neat idea, and she's not that far off in terms of See, where things are going. See, it's already happening. That's so cool. <laughs> but I'd like Black Panther to inspire more cities to be more intentional about what their goals are. Mm-hmm. I mean, whether that's for mobility or open space, housing, whatever it is. And then to have the audacity to be really selective about what technologies they permit on their streets. Yes, absolutely. That is, I think, the most important lesson, not just for city leaders, but for technologists. And filmmakers, too, right? You can create a future city that you really want, not just the same flying car version of a future city in every film, you know? Well, listen, I don't think it's a coincidence we got this new urban vision from Hannah. Yeah. She was really inspired by her experience, in particular her African-American heritage, She was talking about the importance of the bus and the significance of the Rosa Parks story and sort of shaping that vision. And I think that's why it inspired so many people. Yeah, it's no surprise to me that a black woman came up with a different vision for a city because most of the cities we see in the U.S. in the real world and on film were designed by white men. That's true. I mean, even the movies, right, you said Minority Report, Back to the Future, uh, Blade Runner, all of the production designers 
white guys. Exactly. So if you change who's imagining the movies, you change what's going to end up on the big screen. But if you change who's imagining our future cities, you might just change what's possible here in the real world. We'll be back next week with another in-depth conversation from Technopolis. We'll be talking with Maya Wiley, a professor of urban policy, MSNBC contributor, and a digital equity activist about broadband and how the digital divide goes beyond just getting online. Until next time, I'm Molly Turner. And I'm Jim Capsis. Technopolis is a production of CityLab. Nicole Flato is the CityLab editor and our Vibranium hookup. Virginia Laura is our producer, and Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Josh Rogerson is our engineer. Our theme music is by Copilot. Special thanks to my dad for making me watch Blade Runner at age 10. (laughs) For more on the Golden City and what's shaping the cities here in the non-Marvel universe, go to citylab.com. And please take a minute and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Go ahead and leave a rating and review. Those really help.